Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone, they give some people allergy. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation, creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. Yeah. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens, sturdy and fixed. Romans 11:36. Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what He promises and accomplishes. So clever we behold His endeavors unfold. The greatest, greatest story, story ever, ever told. told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. He gave us the word providing us correction. And the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. All right. Devin Palou, and we've got a great show lined up for you today, and I hope you guys will stay tuned and and uh, join that show. Uh, we have not really 
tackled the issue of homosexuality and Christianity yet on on this show. And uh, it is definitely a hot-button issue in the culture. It's a hot-button issue even among Christians. Uh, there are Christians who, who have uh, different views on how we should handle uh, the issues and how we should respond. And so today we're going to have a, a friend of mine who's going to come and join us in about 30 minutes to kind of help us navigate through <clears throat> some of these tougher areas. Uh, so before we do that, let me go ahead and give our Facebook page. Um, if you've not liked our Facebook page, make sure you do. That's where we keep all of our podcasts uh, from the different shows that we've done. We've done a lot of different topics. We've been doing this for almost two years now. I think it'll be two years in June. And uh, we've done shows on Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, several shows on atheism, uh, Islam. We've also had several debates. So we've done debates with <clears throat> Roman Catholics uh, and Protestants on Sola Scriptura, uh, Christianity versus atheism, uh, the doctrine of hell, whether, um, whether or not hell is eternal or uh, whether a person ceases to exist. So check out our, our Facebook page to get several of our podcasts. Also, we keep um, you know articles and other videos like that up through the week. So uh, be sure to check out the page. If you know of any apologetics events, please email us uh, at theologymattersradio at gmail.com. That's theologymattersradio at gmail.com. Let us know, and then we can let people uh, know uh, on the show. Uh, because, you know, not uh, not a lot of places do a lot of events with apologetics, and so uh, when churches or pastors uh, want to hold those events, we want to let people know and, and get the information out to the people. So, with all that being said, uh, for our first 30, 25 minutes or so, <clears throat> I wanted to bring on a good friend uh, of mine, who is a teacher and actually the faculty advisor uh, for us uh, with Ratio Christi at Winthrop University. And so uh, without further ado, Jeff, uh, Jeff, are you there? I am here, Devin. Great to hear you. <laughs> hey, how you doing? Doing good, doing good. It's a beautiful day in the Carolinas, isn't it? Oh, yes, sir. Beautiful, beautiful. 90 degrees, my kind of weather. Yes. Tell us about yourself. What do you uh, What do you do at uh, at Winthrop? Uh, I am actually a, a double alumni of the university, um, and I presently um, teach in the Department of Physical Education, um, Sport and Human Performance. And my areas are really in outdoor education, adventure education, um, and coordinating just a couple of the programs in the department. So I'm wrapping up. Five years, um, really, uh, as, of, as of about today, uh, this week. So I've uh, got, got some roots down in the, in the campus community. Yeah, it sounds like you get to do all the fun stuff. You've you're, you got the good teaching job. <laughs> well, somebody else. <laughs> you go out there and, yeah, that's right, that's right. River rafting and getting a good suntan <laughs> and all that good stuff, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, sir. <laughs> Oh, that's good. Well, I wanted, you know, I, I messaged you. I wanted to bring you on because uh, I know you're a, you're a strong Christian, 
and we like to kind of interview people for the first segment of the show for for a little bit and just kind of have them tell us a little bit about themselves and how they, they came to know the Lord and uh, the need that they see for good uh, theology and uh, apologetics. So talk to us a little bit about your, your background. Did you grow up in a Christian home? Um, I was very blessed to uh, grow up in a Christian home. Um, uh, the son of, of two two wonderful, strong Christian parents. Uh, my father has been a Presbyterian minister for uh, nearly 35 years. Um, and my mother, uh, prior to being married, was a director of Christian education. Um, and when they were married and, and had uh, children, they made the decision uh, fairly early on that they wanted to homeschool us uh, for the, the primary reason being to to provide us with that, that Christian worldview uh, in growing up. So um, I I was raised in that kind of environment, uh, very involved in the in the life of the church, um, and and the I guess the the means by which. I guess God kind of drew me to himself at a very young age was, um, you know, certainly through my parents, but also through um, the friendship of, and, and I hope I don't offend any, any, any listeners, but he was the first old friend that I had. He lived in a retirement community. Oh. He, was the husband, he was the husband of my sister's piano teacher. Uh, and he's really the first elderly person who I was not afraid of, intimidated by, a uh, very warm, genuine man, um, former Christian missionary um, who had retired in the States with his wife. Um, and, you know, there was just something about him that, that I found intriguing. Uh, and I was probably six years old when, uh, when God very uh, unexpectedly called him home. Um, and okay. I, I remember I remember his funeral very vividly, um, and you know I didn't. I, I was six years old. I didn't grasp everything that was going on, um, but I, I remember the funeral and, and just seeing the, the grief in in his wife. Um, that that made an impact. And later that day, the day of his funeral, um, I went back to my dad's office uh, once we got home just to to talk with him about. You know, what it meant to be a Christian, I knew that he was a Christian. Um, and it was on that day that uh, I, I asked Christ into my heart. And, you know, I believe you know, I was genuine. Um, and, you know, after after that um, happened, there there have been some other experiences through which, you know, God has only served to strengthen my faith as an early teenager. Um I struggled a lot with, with doubt and uncertainty, and it was actually a, a clip from um, a film they made on the Pilgrim's Progress, and there was a scene within oh. that film where, um, where they depicted, I guess, the judgment, uh, the final judgment, and certain people were, were being welcomed into heaven and others were being sent to help and to hell. And, you know, I believed in heaven and hell, but... Um, it became more real when I saw that, uh, and that really kind of sparked this uh, this question in my mind of, you know, am I sure that I am a Christian? Um, am I sure of where my eternal security lies? Um, and, you know, I was, I guess I was kind of ashamed that I had these questions, 
Um, and I was, I guess, too ashamed to tell my parents uh, because I didn't want to disappoint them. So um, I became very aware of, of the sin in my life and uh, the guilt over that. And it was really about three years. I kept this to myself, and the, the burden just became greater and greater. And it was at the age of um, 14, I think, uh, God broke me down to the point of, of confessing to my parents of my doubt and my fears. Um, and they they immediately responded in a way that I, I guess I knew deep down they would, you know, in love. Um, and, you know, it was at that point I, I felt a great burden lifted. Um, and my dad at that time, he, he grabbed his Bible immediately and really gave me two passages that have been an anchor in my life. Um, I can still recall and that I share. And uh, the first one um, was John 6:37, and you know, there's the words of Christ. You know, who better to to look at when you're in, in fear and doubt? Um, John 6:37 says, "All that the Father gives me will come to me, uh, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out." Um, oh. And then the second one was uh, John 10, uh, 28 through 30. I give them eternal life, and they shall never, never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Uh, my Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Uh, I and my Father are one. Um, so those have been two anchors, and, you know, in the years that have followed, you know, there have been uh, other valleys through which I have been led uh, and through which he, is, he has remained uh, faithful. So you know, I don't I don't see the full picture of what he does, um, as as do you know none of us do. But uh, I think he he every now and then he gives us a glimpse to see uh, himself in what he's doing. Sure. Um, so that's that's a little bit about about me and my my upbringing. My father is still a Presbyterian minister, and I'm uh, I still sit under his ministry and just have become more and more thankful for. Uh, that and uh, just the sacrifice that my parents um, made in, you know, giving me that that education. So, um, yeah, you know, you just you see how important it is. Um, I mean, it's just it's it's incredibly important. You know, you see uh, all the time. You know, uh, kids who have grown up and and where the mother and the father's not there. It is just chaos so many times, and the, the the kid grows up, and they have all kind of problems and doubts, and it's just so important to have that uh, godly biblical foundation. So you were you were really blessed that God had put you in a home, you know, with two two faithful parents that were I'll, able to bring yeah. you up, and I'll and be the first to like say I, I I took it for granted at the time. You know, I. I, um, you know, daily I, I come to a fuller realization of, um, you know, the, the significance of, of what I've been blessed with. Um, right. So. Well, let me ask you then. So when you started college, what were some of the, or did you have, I guess, some of the intellectual challenges to the Christian faith? I know, you know, a lot of times the, the secular universities are not very lenient on on Christianity. So did you did you encounter any of that when you were going to college as far as 
uh, whether or not the Bible was reliable or God existed or, you know, creation, evolution, any of those type of issues? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, my first day of public school was, as you said, my freshman year uh, of college. And, you know, it, it was it was a shock. I think part of it was expected, but um, the extent to which, you know, one worldview dominates was, was surprising. Um, or hostility towards one worldview dominates. Um, there were certain environments, certain experiences, certain classes where uh, I felt my faith, my, my Christian worldview was being attacked very directly. Um, and then in other, other places, you know, I believe the attack was more subtle. Um, and I maybe was not aware of it at at first, but I became aware of it. Um, and, you know, it's hard for an individual who may be teaching, you know, like a history class to separate their worldview from, from their teaching. Um, right. So there, there were some instances really in that, that first freshman year where um, there was some hostility that, that manifested itself against um, certain Christian students who were in the class and um, you know, I, I was more of a quiet and shy individual, um, you know, in a public school setting for the first time. So um, I tended to be a little more reserved uh, early on. Uh, but there were other students, other Christian students, who very quickly, you know, wanted to share what they believed. Uh, and they did that. Um, and it did not take much for the professors or other students who were in the class in more of a discussion-based setting to to silence them. And uh, it really was that question of why. You can tell me what you believe all day long, but give me the reasons why you you're, you believe what you're telling me. Um, you know, be reasonable about it. And for a lot right. of them, it, it, it kind of shamed some of them into silence. And, you know, it... I, it, it made me thankful for the foundation that I'd been given, but there were certain questions that were raised in my mind that uh, really prompted me to go home. And um, I had the resources, my, my dad being a minister, uh, to ask, ask some questions and get some resources from him um, so that I could find some answers to these questions that were being asked. How important do you think it is for the Christian to know some apologetics, especially, I guess, the college student? Because this is, you know, I guess one of the things I run into a lot is, um, you know, well, I was going to say Christians don't object to theology, but some of them even do that as well. But for a lot of the people that I talk with, some of the biggest objections uh, against doing apologetics comes from other Christians. And they kind of view it as the reason is suspicious, science, logic, those are just kind of tools of the devil. Uh, if you can prove somehow that God exists or that the Bible is true, then that would somehow take away from, from faith. So for the Christians out there, what would you, as maybe even some parents that are listening who will be sending their kids to the university, um, how would you respond? You know, is it, is it important for for Christians to be learning apologetics, even in the church? Yes. Um, I, I tend to believe that, you know, the, the study of theology, the study of God, 
and apologetics go hand in hand. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're called as as a Christian. You know, one of the, the central things to my life is going to be uh, to learn more and more about the truth of of who God is, of who He's revealed Himself to be uh, through the study of His Scripture, and the, and the more that we come to know about him through that, the more we can really come to know him in Christ. Um, and that I also believe that, you know, the apologetics, you know, being able to make a defense, it's a reflection that you really do understand what you believe about God, about his plan of redemption. Um, you're able to articulate it in a manner that reflects uh, that understanding, uh, being very reasonable um, so I, I would tend to argue that it is important and, you know, just based on what I've seen, I've, I've been in a, in a higher education environment for about 11 years now between, um, uh, being a student and a teacher, you know, and I've, I've seen certain students who, young Christian students who arrive on campus and seem to have that strong foundation, um, but they they just simply aren't aren't aware of how to make that effective defense of their faith when it is attacked or called into question. Um, and I think without being able to answer, a lot of them are more prone to just be quiet about it and almost privatize it, keep keep their faith to themselves, um, which I believe is very is very dangerous. Um, other young people, you know, perhaps they've been raised in the church, arrive on on a college campus. Um, thinking they know what they believe, and then very suddenly in that first year they become aware uh, of the fact that they really don't know all that much. Um, they've kind of grown up with a perception of of thinking they knew what they believed, and um, I think a lot of them are um, just very quick to, to just leave it all behind. Um <clears throat> So those those are just you know some things that that I've observed um, and some reasons why I think you know ministries like Ratio Christi are are, are so critical um, opening up those lines of communication reaching out to those those students. Yeah, Frank uh, Frank Turek with Cross Examined Ministries. He's co-authored the book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, which we we've given out a bunch of those copies on the website. <laughs> Um, and they've really done, I mean, it's it's been an amazing testimony to see how that book has really challenged uh, a lot of the, the atheists there. But, um, you know, he says 75%, and this is based on certain stats, 75% of Christian kids uh, who grow up in a Christian home, the first year of college, end up walking away from the faith. And I remember he he tells a story of um i think it was of a i think it was of a pastor who had wrote him a letter uh, basically saying look i need i need help my my daughter who has been brought up in a christian home has gone away to the university i think it was i want to say chapel hill it was chapel hill and he she had had uh, several classes under bart Ehrman, who was a well known um new testament scholar and uh, he actually he actually went to uh Wheaton and Moody Bible Institute and sat under I want to say F, it was either F.F. F. Bruce or Bruce Bruce Metzger one of those two very popular scholars and anyway he ended up becoming a 
completely disavowing the Christian faith and became uh, an apostate. And so she sat under his classes and um, ended up completely uh, losing all of her confidence and her trust that the Bible was reliable and in other classes had attacked uh, the idea that man was something, you know, special, made in the image of God. Uh, and so, you know, he was basically pleading for help. You know, where do I go? And, you know, it's like Frank uh, Frank said, you know, it's it's kind of like when you wait that long, it's almost too late. <laughs> you know, it's like you got to start early. And uh, I just think it's so important, you know, to get apologetics started in the church and get it going down from the pulpit. And that way uh-huh. the, these type of things... You know, because if 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 the pastors inoculate them, so to speak, if they are if they show them the criticisms that they're going to face before they get there, and they see, okay, this is these are going to be some of the strongest criticisms. Here's going to be the, here's the answers to those. Well, then it's not this kind of shock, you know, when they go in there and they they're being hit with these things like, you know, we don't know who wrote the Gospels and they're written centuries late. And then so many times they go home and ask their their pastor, and the pastor doesn't know the questions himself. And it just, uh, you know, you just you see it wreak havoc. But, um, you know, we were talking about Ratio, Ratio Christi a little bit. Um, talk about kind of your, your role with Ratio Christi and um, some of the things you're, I guess, you're hoping to see in the future and... Uh, and kind of the benefit, I guess, you see of having it on the campus, if you don't mind. Oh, sure. Uh, well, it was, I guess, earlier this spring semester, I got an email out of the blue from a friend, a former uh, student, classmate, instructor at Winthrop, and uh, just asking me if I had any interest in, in speaking to someone interested in this new apologetics-based group. And so uh, I think I scared him at how quickly I responded to his email. Uh, <laughs> I've, I've seen the need for it. Uh, for, for for a while, and um, just in what I've seen this semester and what I've seen uh, the Lord do through um, your ministry uh, on campus, you know, I'm only uh, reaffirmed in my belief that, you know, it is something that, that we need and um, that God can and, and will use. Uh, I think it's a great opportunity to open up some uh, lines of communication uh, for engaging those students who have um, serious questions, um, you know, believers and non-believers alike, um, and you know, just a, an opportunity to have a mature and a respectful dialogue. Um, you know, I think in in politics and the media, we just see more and more demonization of of people who don't believe what we believe or think the way we think, and. Uh, if if there's oh, any yeah. place where we should have that response, responsible, respectful dialogue, it should be a college campus. Um, so yeah, well, you know, just one, one, on one that thing front. I was going to bring up real real quick, Jeff. Uh, you know, I think it was the week before because we had held that event um, on April 15th. And this, I'm not. This isn't touting me. This is just. Uh, I, hopefully, this will encourage others, maybe who are listening. Get Ratio Christi started, you know, in your campus. Uh, they're they're growing everywhere. I mean, they're really out of control right now as far as the growth rate. But the week mm-hmm. before we had held our 
uh, event on April 15th. We did the event at Science Bearing God. Had a huge turnout. But the, about a week before that, uh, I was told and I read in the in the, the university newspaper there that they had uh, some type of like open air preacher out there with the signs, you know, God hates you and calling everybody names and this type of thing. And I guess the I was told the police were called and there it just got really ugly. And before a few years before us, they were out there and it caused a mm-hmm. riot and all kind of stuff. But they make their rounds, yes, Yeah, it's such a different approach, though, because not only did we do the event Tuesday night, and we had almost 200 people show up, the next night, the free, and by the way, it was the, the Freethinkers that sponsored the debate, or the uh, the event. So that was, that was amazing in and of itself. And then the next night, they invited us to come to their group uh, meeting and do... Um, it was supposed to be from 8 to 9, but we ended up there till 9.40, basically answering questions about the Christian faith. But it's just, you know, it's, it's as you're saying, you know, we need to have a, a better approach as far as, you know, dialogue and talking. That, that has I made think, so much of a difference, hasn't it? I think one of the, the most important things that I've seen, um, the most powerful things that I've seen, uh, through through ministries like this, is it, it's, it's an opportunity to, to develop those relationships, to let them get to know you better, and to really come to the understanding that, hey, these people are coming to my college campus to talk to me, for me. I mean, it's not it's not something they're not seeking their own, you know, benefit or their own peace of mind. They're here to talk to me. Um, they're interested in me. And when, when people kind of come to that realization, you know, these people are giving up their time um, for something that they believe this strongly about, you know, I want to know what that, that is. And it's an open door to, to kind of ultimately maybe tell your story of grace um, to them. And, I mean, that's, that's you know, I've, I've heard a certain apologist, I can't remember who it was, it might have been, oh, Robbie Zacharias might have said it, but, you know, people cannot refute your, the story of God's grace in your life. They may be able to, you know, argue some of these other points, but, you know, you know, it's all working in that direction to, to, um, you know, let others see Christ in you. And sometimes that that relationship is that that um, opportunity to do that. So, uh, I've 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 seen the the impact that you you and um, the rest of the team have had uh, just in a few months. Well, that is that is definitely you know, a blessing. It's a godsend, you know, and hopefully, uh, you know, people who, who listen to this interview, I hope it encourages uh, parents who maybe are listening and uh, you're hearing from someone that teaches, you know, at the university and he's a Christian and he's telling you, you know, apologetics is important. We need to have the kids trained up and um, also... Uh, for people who are who are in college, maybe you're a student and you're wanting to get a ratio Christie on the university, uh, ratiochristie.org. Look that look that up and, and look into trying to get a, uh, a club on your campus because we've seen amazing results. I mean, really nationwide uh, with this. I think it could really I think it could really reform the university. I think it's gonna it's gonna take back. Um, it's, it's gonna it's gonna revamp how Christians are looked at, because right now in the university Christians are looked at like a bunch of morons, 
And with more and more Ratio Christie's coming up and more of the uh, debates and these type of things that are being sponsored, they're finally getting some some good um, exposure to, you know, more than people like Pat Roberts, <laughs> Pat Roberts or mm-hmm. something like that. So, well, I know you got to go. I know you got to run. I really appreciate you uh, coming and and uh, talking with us. And uh, we're going to definitely have to hook up this summer and maybe grab a bite to eat and and uh, talk theology. Absolutely, absolutely. Devin, I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you as well, my friend, and we will definitely keep in touch. All right, brother. I'll talk to you later. God bless. All right, so what we're going to do real quick is I'm going to – I wanted to play a a clip before we bring our guest on, Miguel. Uh, I think that's how you say his name. I'll let him correct me if I'm wrong. I want to play this clip from the movie God's Not Dead. Uh, it's, uh, to my knowledge, still in the college campus, or not college campuses, but movie theaters. Um, this movie has really taken hold. Um, it was supposed to originally come in, I think, only 780 movie theaters, and it has just blown up, and it is on demand. So I'm going to go ahead and play this uh, clip, and then we will come back with our guest, and we will deal with the issue of, of homosexuality, and uh, how do Christians respond to some of these um, attacks, really, uh, that are that are coming at us? So we'll go ahead and, and uh, take this quick break, and we will be right back. And here is the trailer for God's Not Dead. All this stuff is temporary. Money, success. Even life is temporary. Jesus, that's eternal. And that's it? That's it. That's yeah. what we're going with. I'm Professor Radisson. Philosophy 150. This semester I propose that we refuse to waste our limited time together debating the existence of the big man in the sky. Fill in the papers I've just given you with three little words. God is dead. I can't do what you want, I'm a Christian. We've got your results back. You have cancer. The answer's simple. Drop the class. It's like it's something that God wants me to do. I can't just turn away from it. Somehow. You really should go see Mom. What's in it for me? If you cannot bring yourself to admit that God is dead, then you will need to defend the antithesis. God's not dead. He's surely alive. You're here because that voice inside you isn't happy with the choices everyone else wants you to make. It's not easy. It's simple. Mr. So are you ready? We're going to put God on trial. What do you say to people who don't believe? We disown him, he'll disown us. You think you're smarter than me, Wheaton? Do you think there's any argument you can make that I won't have an answer for? In that classroom, there is a God, and yes, I'm him. It doesn't seem quite fair to me. I can't help what a boy wants to make a fool of himself. Look, I know I am in the minority here, but I actually believe in God. I think you're here kind of hoping that this stuff is for me. I'm quite for you. To me, he's not dead. God wants for them to make their own choice. That's what God wants. You just want to ensnare them in your primitive superstition. Why do you hate God? Science supports his existence. You know the truth. 
That was the trailer for God's Not Dead, and a uh, very good show, a uh, good movie. So, did your family go out to the, the theaters and watch that show? You guys will not be disappointed. Um, you know, some of the scenes may not be the most realistic. You're going to have people that criticize, um, you know, it's not perfect. It's a, you know, it's a movie. It was low budget. Um, but I think the message was good. I thought the apologetics overall was was pretty good in it. Um, yeah, so I you know I would recommend people people watch that uh, watch that movie, go support it, and uh, you know if nothing else, it gives you something to talk about uh, with your your friends, your coworkers. Uh, it's a platform. A lot of these movies are Noah that that recently came out came under a lot of heat. Those kind of movies are good for uh, for for discussion. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and bring our our guest on. Uh, Miguel, is that, am I pronouncing your name right? Yeah, that's correct, Miguel. Okay. <laughs> Miguel, uh, and I'll let you pronounce your last name here. I'm, I know I'm more sure. than name. Yeah, it's, uh, my full name is Miguel Benitez. Benitez is the last Benitez, name. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you're adjunct professor of worldview at uh, Beth Haven University in or- the Orlando campus, an apologist with uh, Dallas Faith Ministries. Miguel received his MA in Christian apologetics from Biola University and is currently pursuing an MA in theological studies at Reformed Theological Seminary, Orlando. So we got us a, a good high powered thinker on here today, and we're probably going to need it, uh, because this is definitely a hot-button issue, but before we get into that, did I leave anything out? Uh, I'm no, not sure no. if you're married or have That's kids. Or... I, I am married, no children yet. Uh, my wife, Daniela, she, she's, uh, she, we've been married for just under four years now. Oh, okay, great. Wonderful. Well, so this is a big, uh, a big topic we are we're tackling today, and it's, it's, I was going to say it's funny, but it's not really funny. Um, my wife works for uh, a gentleman who has been being filmed by the new uh, HGTV show that was like flipping, flipping it forward with the Benhams. And okay. recently, um, these guys, the Benhams are, are, are kind of well-known for especially their father, for a lot of uh, work with uh, the pro-life movement, uh, as well as the sanctity of marriage. And so what has happened is they were about six episodes into the show. And um, let me let me go ahead and read. I'll, I've got a little article here. I'll go ahead and read that just to kind of explain uh, to people what's going on. Because after the group Right Wing Watch reported uh, the twins who starred in HGTV's recently uh, greenlit reality series Flip It Forward are anti-gay activists. The network said this morning it had given the hook to the series, which was set to debut in October. 
Yesterday, HGTV said it was currently in the process of reviewing uh, all of the information about the Benhams, and we will provide an update as soon as possible. Then, let's see here, then came this tweet today. HGTV has decided not to move forward with the Benham Brothers series. Right Wing Watch reported Tuesday that David Benham had led a prayer rally outside of the Democratic National Convention in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, in 2012 in which he told conservative radio host Janet Medford that America's Christian majority must repent for tolerating homosexuality and its agenda that is attacking the nation and demonic ideologies uh, taking our universities and our public school system. And then he said he and his uh, brother also joined him in the prayer protest, and the group also claimed David Lee's protests outside of abortion clinics. So there was a huge outcry as soon as people found out that these people, uh, that the Benham brothers had, uh, are involved with uh, sanctity of marriage, sanctity of life, and uh, they, the people just went nuts on the on the Facebook. If you actually go to the HGTV Facebook and read the comments, if you do not support same-sex marriage, you are a bigot, you are a racist, you are... You know, the worst of the worst. So this yeah. show is pretty yep. timely. <laughs> yeah, is, I, I, agree. I agree. I actually just saw uh, someone post, a couple of people post that on Facebook uh, today, actually. So I thought that was interesting that uh, that would come up recently. Yeah, it was my my um, my wife. It was her boss that they were they were renovating wow. the house. Six episodes in, and they canceled the show. I guess they've been there are several houses uh, that they have been doing uh, in order to get ready for that. So I guess they just ate the money and and uh, they caved, and and that is what's happened. So it's an important issue. Uh, it definitely definitely is an is an important issue. So I guess. How did you become interested in apologetics, really? Because some people don't maybe not think this is an apologetic-related issue, but it really is, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's absolutely an apologetic issue, and it's something that we need to. And I think you just gave a perfect example as to why Christians need to be thinking about this and, and how we react in a culture that, that really seems to be shifting pretty quickly right before our eyes. So I think this is the kind of thing we need to be talking about. Me personally, I, I became interested. It's interesting that you uh, showed that you uh, played the trailer of the um, God's Not Dead uh, because I feel like I haven't seen it yet, but I feel like I can probably relate to the storyline a bit. But uh, I became a Christian when I was 13 years old, but really had never even heard the word apologetics until I was about 20, 21 years old. I was at a community college and had a biology professor that just really antagonistic towards Christianity. Um, he would mock Christianity, very open about his dislike of Christianity, would say that the Bible was full of hocus-pocus, and uh, actually said that um, Jesus, there, there was no evidence that Jesus even ever existed. And um, how that found its way into the biology curriculum, I'm not sure, but, but it did. And, and, um, and then he would say things just to mock religion. Like I remember one day in class he said, you know, I'm, I'm going to start a new religion where everyone has to have one abortion, you know. And, and wow. um, that, that was just kind of That's his like, way yeah, of... 
was was a PZ Myers, was was it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was kind of his way of saying, you know, you're making a claim uh, from from you know religion that we shouldn't have abortion. I'm going to make a claim from religion that we should all have an abortion, and 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 we'll talk a little bit about that later on, hopefully, as far as. Uh, some of the faulty thinking that goes into that, but um, th- this professor was, you know, one of the smartest men I'd ever met, and and he thought that my religious beliefs were foolish, and and so, you know, being in my early twenties and never having really been exposed to apologetics, it really did kind of weigh on me. I felt like my worldview was kind of caving in on me, and and um, and and then just through. Uh, you know, someone ended up pointing me towards kind of a creationist website, and and so I just started kind of reading through it, reading some of the evidences, realizing, you know, from there I found out what this word apologetics is, and then started listening to Ravi Zacharias and realizing that there's people who've dedicated their lives to dealing with these issues, and um, and I just couldn't get enough, and and that's just kind of where where the journey began for me. So it was kind of a little bit of the um... I guess um, exposure to some of the other creationist material. Did you grow up in a Christian home, or um, I became a Christian at thirteen? So, um, sort of. You know, uh, when uh, in my earliest ages, no, we didn't really go to church. Um, and then when I was thirteen, um, we my sister was actually going to. She's she's a couple years younger than me, and uh, she was actually going to a Christian school just because it was a, a better school than the one that was in the area. And so she actually, at, um, I guess, nine years old, uh, received the Lord in class because her teacher shared the gospel with her. And, um, and then I remember uh, her coming home one day and, and telling me and, you know, that she had received Jesus and she wanted to make sure that I had received Jesus because she wanted to make sure that I was going to heaven, and um, and that was actually the first time I ever heard any sort of a gospel presentation. And then um, shortly thereafter, my family started attending church because my aunt had invited us, and um, I heard the gospel preached and was saved the very first night I went to church. And and so yeah, wow. I was at 13 years old. Yeah. So how did you end up at Biola? Um, well, um, after I uh, was introduced to apologetics at the community college, um, you know, through my through my incident there, um, I went on to FAU. I, w- I connected with someone who was trying to start a brand new college ministry um, at FAU, and and so we connected, and I immediately knew that I wanted apologetics to be a part of it, and then um, a a guy who I didn't know at the time, he would later become one of my mentors, um, was actually really good friends with Craig Hazen. And so he let the group know that he would, he would be able to bring Craig Hazen, the director of the Biola program, to our campus, and, uh, and we could host an apologetics event. And so we all, you know, loved it. And, and so he came out, and, and that was the first time I met him. And we would have him come out once more before I graduated. And so just getting to know him uh, more personally, he kind of pitched the program to me. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, I signed up for it and, and, and did that. All right. Well, we are glad that you're our, on our team. <laughs> you're on our side. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> 
Well, let's do this. I've got a clip for about three minutes of an interview okay. between Piers Morgan and Kirk Cameron uh, on this issue, and that will kind of set it up for why why should we even care about these hot-button issues. So here's right. Piers Morgan kind of talking to, to Kirk Cameron, the famous uh, interview that, uh, that went down. And uh, I'll play it for a couple minutes, and I'd like to get your thoughts. Sounds good. What is your view of gay marriage? I feel like I just got imported into the Christine O'Donnell interview you did back in August. Well, that, I mean, that was the interview where she, she wouldn't talk about stuff in her own book. I know. I, I'm, I know. Just, I'm just saying, when you, these issues are interesting to me about what you would tell your kids, who you're trying to protect, for example. Yes. Would you tell them that gay marriage is a sin? I would tell my children, as, as I, I tell them what I believe myself, and uh, dealing with these social issues, whether it's uh, abortion what, or gay what, marriage. What do you believe? I believe that marriage was defined uh, by God a long time ago. Marriage is almost as old as dirt, and it was defined in the garden between Adam and Eve, one man, one woman, for life, uh, till death do you part. So I would never attempt to try to redefine marriage, and I don't think anyone else should either. So do I support uh, the idea of gay marriage? No, I don't. Do you think homosexuality is a sin? I think that it's, uh, it's, 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 it's unnatural. I think that it's, it's, it's detrimental and uh, ultimately destructive to so many uh, of the foundations of civilization. So what do you do if one of your six kids says, Dad, bad news, I'm gay? I'd sit down and I'd have a heart-to-heart with them, just like you would with your kids. I, I'd yeah, talk if to them I about... That, if one of my sons said that, I'd say, that's great, son, as long as you're happy. What would you say? Well, I wouldn't say that's great, son, as long as you're happy. I'm going to say, uh, you know, there's, there's all sorts of issues that we need to wrestle through in our life, and just because you feel one way doesn't mean we should act on everything that we feel. But and yet, not only some on. people would say that telling kids that being gay is a sin or getting married is a sin or whatever, that in itself is incredibly destructive and damaging in a country where seven states now have legalized it. Yes, but, but you have to also understand that, that you yourself are using a standard of morality to say that telling people such and such of a, of a behavior is sinful. Um, uh, you're using a standard of morality to make that statement and say that that is terribly destructive. So everyone is going to have a standard against yeah, no, which no, no, they... No, no, listen, listen, I'm not an American. I'm making the point that seven states in America have now legalized gay marriage. Well, Piers, you're, you're, you're speaking to a man who is a Christian, and I believe that all of us are sinful. Uh, I, 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 would, I could stand at the top of the list and say that I need a savior, and I need an overhaul of the heart more than anyone. And so that's what I teach my kids. I teach them the values that I hold dear. I treasure the God that loves me and, and forgives me of my sin. And I would teach that to my children uh, as well as having a wonderful relationship with them that my wife and I work on every single day. Visit wayofthemaster.com today and never be lukewarm again. All right, so there you have it. You, you, uh, I guess you can kind of see, or I hope, hopefully people can see why it is uh, important to address this hot, hot button issue sure. as you see. Piers Morgan kept appealing to the fact that it was legal in seven states. And therefore, if it's legal, somehow it must be moral. Talk to us. Why, yeah. why should we care about this issue? And go ahead and give us some of your comments on that video. 
Sure, sure. Uh, well, yeah, first on the video, um, it's interesting because he, he kind of begs the question a little bit as to whether it's okay or not uh, in the way that he would respond to his son. Um, Pierce Morgan says if his son came up to him and told him he was gay, he would, he would simply say, that's great, son, as long as it makes you happy. And I would want to ask Pierce, in how many situations is that going to be the response to his son? Um, certainly not things that he would think are wrong. And that's what's a, that's that's the question we're asking, not well, uh, you know. And good. so he's assuming it's not wrong, um, that's and, and that's why yeah. he can respond to his son that way. That's good. Um, so yeah. So as far as as far as why even address this hot button issue? Well, first I'll I'll just kind of lay out why why am I you know when you contacted me about this you know we've been wanting to to do something for a while here and I was really excited about the opportunity but um you know when you when you approach me it's kind of like oh man a hundred different apologetic topics kind of rushed to my head at <laughs> once you know and I just didn't know what right. to what to do and and um. And, and then within a week or two of, of that, um, a number of things happened where, one, I was speaking to an RTS professor at a different campus just talking about possible uh, thesis topics, and he actually mentioned the, the, the topic about you know, Christians and doing cultural apologetics in light of some of the changes that have been happening regarding same-sex marriage and views on homosexuality. And then shortly thereafter, the CEO from Mozilla resigns because of the controversy there um, in which he had supported Prop 8 uh, a number of years ago. And, uh, and then after that, I actually get an email from a former pastor of mine who's been very influential in my life and just a mentor to me. And he, he tells me, Miguel, you know, in light of this, how can we train our people to be prepared to engage with this kind of a culture? Um, there's a cost that, that, that's now attached to it here. And he said it's almost like our views as Christians on homosexuality and same-sex marriage, they've become a defeater. Um, people think that Christians have, once you have a certain view on traditional marriage, now it's like nothing else you say matters because you have primitive ideas in their eyes. And so he was just trying to ask me, you know, how, how can we prepare the people in the church to do this? And, um, and then um, even more recent than that, um, it, it was interesting. Mm -hmm. It was all over the news. You heard about the um, the Clippers owner who has been banned from the NBA for life over um, you know his racist comments. And uh, what was interesting about that is, as soon as I saw kind of some of what was happening, I said, I hope that our culture and and, and I kind of had a, a, an idea that they wouldn't. I hope that our culture can can realize that race and uh, sexual orientation are not the same thing. And, um, and, and so my, my, my question was, are we going to end up in a day where now, because you and I as Christians and as believers, we can say racism is sin, racism is wrong, and there's no place for it. But are we going to now, because our culture can't really sort out the difference, end up where an NBA owner who's a believer and speaks out against same-sex marriage could possibly be banned for life from the I NBA thought, for his I comments? Thought the, I thought the same thing. I thought the exact same. You see, that, that's going to yeah. be the next litmus test because, after yeah. all, you know, it's legal in seven states. 
and more, right. you know, more and more <laughs> right. being piled on. I, I thought the exact same yeah. thing. You know, I obviously the guy's comments were terrible and ignorant and everything else, but right, oh, man, exactly. If once you put uh, morality, you know, those those views of homosexuality um, on the yeah. same, you know, par as racism, the same consequences, I guess, will probably follow. Right, and and the thing is, it wasn't even. It wasn't even an hour later that Kevin Johnson, who's a former NBA player, used to play for the Phoenix Suns. I remember growing up watching him play for the Suns. Um, He's now the mayor of Sacramento, and he comes out, and he applauds the commissioner. And again, I'm not really necessarily speaking to that issue. Uh, You and I agree what what that gentleman did was wrong, and and it it needs to be punished, uh, whether – the punishment that was given is just or not, I think is just kind of a different issue. So, but, but, but um, the key here is, so Kevin Johnson comes out, applauds the commissioner for what he's done um, for banning the owner of the Clippers for life and lists, um, says that it's a great day and lists a number of athletes that have been very uh, influential and crucial for the civil rights movement. So he lists Tommy Smith and John Carlos from the 1968 Olympics, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, Arthur Ashe, and Jackie Robinson, all of which we can agree. Whether we agree with everything they did or not, they've made huge strides uh, for the black community and for athletics and for minorities in athletics, and we can applaud that as Christians, as people who believe that we're, we're all of one blood, we're all made in the image of God, and, and so uh, we applaud the good things that they did and, and, and what they were able to bring to the culture, but he also lists Jason Collins. And what's different about Jason Collins is that all the people I've named, one, are very, very well known, um, and they were great at their specific sport. Um, Jason Collins wasn't really a known name until just a few months ago. And he's an NBA player who actually came out as, you know, he's the first basketball player to come out as gay. And so I just thought it was so interesting, just eat, not even an hour after the sentencing of, you know, the, the, the Clippers owner being banned for life from the NBA, we now have uh, someone conflating the two issues of race and, and sexual orientation. Wow. Well, and that's you know it's just the thing. It's like once you, once they just use that label, like you see with the Ben the Benhams, you know, they're, they're anti gay, right. they're right. anti anti abortion. Well, they, of course they never say that. They just say you're anti choice. Right. them like that. It's like, oh, you know, I don't want to be that, and you, you just get that label on you, and it's <clears throat> it's just ridiculous. It really is, and it's it's scary to me. Um, because I, right. I do, I want, man, 25 years from now, what in the world is it going to be like, on, you know, especially on this issue? Uh, it was yeah. um, two weeks ago, I was uh, going through a thing on the on the Internet, reading the news stories, and Disney has now come out with the first um, show for, for kids. It, it airs during the daytime with the very first gay lesbian couple really promoting hmm. it. You know, it's it's um, it's amazing, and they were really um, 
they were lauded for it. People were were elated that that right. uh, Disney had, had done this. Right. It's it's certainly it's certainly you know a, a, an important issue that we're dealing with right now, and I think a lot of changes are happening very quickly, and I think this is why it's important. So, um, and and what, you know, so I've kind of shared why I thought it was important to cover, even though, and not everybody reacted this way, but it was one of those things because it is such an emotional issue and such a hot button issue. It'd be like I'd, I'd be talking to a friend or family member on the phone, and I told them about this opportunity I was going to have to be on your show and 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 they'd ask me so what are you going to talk about and i'd tell them and then it was just kind of like that silence like oh man <laughs> like are you really going to do that on your your first time on the show and you know and so it was just and then when i could explain to them you know the approach that i was trying to take and my goal in actually having this conversation i think they could appreciate right. it more but certainly there was kind of that hesitancy of wow you know like are you well, sure you want to do I'll- that so I'll be I'll be honest with you, brother. I have tried for the last year and a half to get someone to come on and deal with this topic. I mean, people who have master's degrees in philosophy, a couple right. that had doctorates, they didn't want to touch right. these issues. Not that it's not that they sure. were, you know, scared or anything like that. It's just they didn't feel, uh, you know, adequately prepared to to kind of handle some of these. Issues, so you know, uh, a lot of people, even Christians, they just don't even want to want to handle it because you say one thing wrong or it's taken wrong, and you're done. I mean, you are brandished right. right. hard forever. <laughs> so yeah. good luck, and, yeah, and, for you. yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that. So, but so the question is now: so why, as as Christians more generally, should we be engaging in this issue? Why should we um, care to to get involved in this issue that's just so emotional? And um, and I actually think the reason we need to be working hard at it and thinking through it now. Because now's the time, not when your job's at stake, right? We need to make decisions about this kind of thing and how we want to react when we're not in, in kind of that emotional state. Um, I'm sure you've heard people say, you know, apologists say it all the time, the time to think about the problem of evil is not when you're in the midst of it. It's before you're yeah. in the midst of it so that then you're standing on solid ground when you are in the midst right. of it. And, and, and so I think likewise, um, you know, we want to think about where we stand, what Scripture has to say to this before we end up in a situation where now we're having to make a decision that could cost us our jobs, as we're seeing, you know, in some of the, the articles that you've mentioned and even, uh, you know, some of the others, uh, bakers and photographers that that are now having to close down because of their convictions. Um, but the way that I kind of see it, and I, I see apologetics this way, and it's been a helpful analogy for me, um, I used to... Um, I used to coach high school football when I graduated from high school. And, uh, and so I used to read a lot about coaches. And, and one of my favorite coaches that I used to love reading his material was Bill Walsh, longtime 49er coach, coach at Stanford. Oh, yeah. And, and um, yeah, and, and so I used to read uh, articles by him. And, and he had this article about scripting plays. And what scripting plays means is you, you decide – before you get to the game, so he said Thursday night, he was sitting down, and he would write down the first 20 to 40 plays that he was going to call 
in the game that Sunday. And, uh, and he said that a lot of people would tell him, how can you do that? You're not in the game. You're not, you don't, you know, all of that. And he said, I can make better decisions when I'm at my desk on Thursday night than when I'm in the heat of battle on Sunday. And so um, I just think that's so helpful. And, and later on I, I heard uh, William Lane Craig when he was asked once, you know, how do you make sure that you approach people with the right attitude and in a loving way not get frustrated with them? And he said, I've, I've noticed that the times I become most frustrated is when people ask me questions I hadn't thought about. And so I think if we can, you know, think ahead, anticipate what kind of things we're going to be uh, running into, because you don't know when it's going to happen, then we're ready for when the moment arises. That's absolutely right. Yeah, because it's it's easy to get um, easy to get caught up in the emotions because it is definitely it's it's an emotional issue, and uh, I think I think. Part of the problem is when that happens, we we tend to argue badly. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. We're not thinking clearly. So I think uh, I think yeah. you're right. We've got to have a a um, a good get kind of a game plan how to how we how we deal with some of these issues. So let me ask you. I mean, there's there's different there's different approaches uh, the Christians take on this. I didn't know if you wanted to go there first or did you have another did you have something else you'd wanted to, to talk about before we jump into kind of sure. I just or? want to make one quick point as we kind of talk about um this issue. I, I do want to make the point because I think a lot of times, especially as we talk about apologetics and we're talking about cultural apologetics, the church can sometimes be given a bad name by the apologists who are actually trying to defend its truth. And so um, I do want to make the point, and, and I kind of base this off of Acts chapter 5, and I'll just read a quick portion of Scripture there. Picking up in verse 27, and, and just to give the context, Peter and some of the apostles have been arrested for preaching. And, uh, and so here's their charge. It says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here, and this is the point I'm making, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. And my point in communicating that is, I'm not trying to in any way beat up the church and say we've got to wake up but rather as things are changing right now and they're changing very rapidly my hope is to just kind of contribute to the conversation of how should we react as Christians in light of what's happening in our culture because I think as this passage communicates to us even if the church is doing its job it says you fill Jerusalem with your teachings um, sometimes the culture still goes against us. And, and so I think it's important to know that the culture doesn't always necessarily reflect the church. That is that is very good, very good, good wisdom. Let me uh, go ahead and give the phone number out right now, too, uh, if anybody's wanting to call in. And, and uh, again, we realize it's a hot-button uh, issue. You don't have to agree with us to call in. You know, just be respectful and and let us have dialogue. Is uh, is all we ask. Number is seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven seven six zero five four two three nine zero seven. 
And, uh, you know, I think I think you're right with what you're saying as far as, um, you know, we don't want to be a bad uh, reflection. And um, right. I'll have a video I'll play here in a little bit of uh, kind of a well-known uh, female Christian who is being interviewed on The View and uh, just, uh, in my opinion, doesn't do a, a, a great job at this. But, but talk with us. I guess what are what are some of the approaches or... Sure. Yeah, I think I think when we're when we're thinking of this issue, and again, I, I also do want to just take a moment and say um, the focus, at least for us here today, is more uh, answering the question: How should we as Christians react in light of the increasing hostility towards our views of homosexuality and same-sex marriage? And and so you know, there, there's a lot of material, and actually at the Doubtless Faith website, we've posted a page where we've collected a number of the free resources of videos that are online that actually dive into the text much more than what we'll, you know, have time to do today, especially since we're focusing more on how do we want to engage the culture. Um, so if right. there is questions about the text, and we can, of course, cover some of the relevant texts but um, I, I would want to encourage them to check that out and, and, and gain more um, understanding of some of the debatable passages in Scripture and things like that. But I think, we, I think we'll, as we... Uh, we'll, we'll throw yeah, that uh, website up on our Facebook page as well so people okay, can perfect. find that link. Go right ahead. Yeah. So I think as we, as we start thinking about engaging culture in this issue, the first thing we have to do is establish a biblical anthropology. We have to understand what is man, that key worldview question is, is kind of our starting place. And uh, it, it's interesting at Bellhaven, I, I teach worldview there, and, and they, they give a pretest to all those students before they take my class. And the number one question that students get wrong on that pretest is the nature of man. All, and this is a Christian university, but the vast majority of my students will say that man is basically good. Um, and so uh, when we're understanding that, that, that immediately kind of shifts the conversation and gives you certain assumptions that I think are not helpful and, and they misguide you when having this kind of a conversation. So I think understanding a biblical anthropology is very important. And so I think two significant kind of aspects to understand about biblical anthropology is, uh, you know, as we usually discuss, Romans 1. Um, where we see that uh, you know the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So men are suppressing God's truth in unrighteousness. God has made himself known plainly and yet people are in rebellion against him. Uh, we are born with a sinful nature. We're born in rebellion against God. And so I think that's kind of the first pillar, the first understanding we have to grasp uh, when, when considering a biblical anthropology. Um, and then secondly, I would say Psalm 8 is where we would want to turn to understand kind of the, the, the other side of, um, of a biblical anthropology. And uh, picking up in verse 4 of Psalm 8, it says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
Yet you have made, a, made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord... Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so here we see the dignity of man, that, that, that God created man for a special purpose, that God has a special relationship with man that he doesn't have uh, anywhere else. It says that he created him with glory and honor. And so I think understanding these two aspects uh, are important when uh, kind of understanding this issue, when approaching this issue in culture. Um, and, and I think it's, it's important for two specific reasons. And one is that it helps us understand people better. Uh, and two is that it helps us deal with some of the biological objections that we face and the discussion regarding the gay gene. Okay. Yeah. Explain that. How, how does that work? So the first one, uh, it helps us understand people better, and, and basically our desire to understand people better should be rooted in a love for them. Uh, as Christians, we're called to love everyone, to love our neighbor uh, as we love ourselves. I mean, this is, this, is, this is what we need to be about. We need to be about loving people. And, and now, granted, we need to allow Scripture to define what love is for us and not what our culture wants to call love. But nevertheless, right. we need to truly love these people. And if we that truly is... love them, we'll seek – go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, go... I was just saying that is a crucial point there yeah. as far as – biblical view of love and not the cultural view of love. Right, right. Yeah, that that's essential. It's essential that we understand that distinction there. And and so if if we're truly loving people, we're going to want to understand them more. And and so a lot of a lot of people on the other side of this issue, the people who are proponents of same-sex marriage, want to argue that Christians are homophobes. Uh, they're homophobic and they're bigoted, and, and they say that you know our 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 ideas, our beliefs are rooted in fear and in ignorance. Mm -hmm. And this might sound controversial, but I think for some Christians, it is rooted in fear and in ignorance. They haven't loved their gay neighbors enough to understand their struggle. They haven't yeah. loved their gay neighbor enough to understand that for some people this is an extremely emotional issue that cannot simply be disregarded by saying, well, it's, it's a choice, almost like just hanging on to that one phrase as if it solves everything. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So, the, so in one so, way then we've, we've failed not to love our, our, uh, our neighbor who struggles with, with homosexual tendencies or behavior. Right. Yeah, and I think when we love them more and, and understand them more, it's not only going to help us engage non-believers better, it's going to also even help us engage our brothers and sisters in the Lord who struggle with these issues. I think because so much of Christianity is still afraid of this, of this homosexuality that we're, we're doing a disservice to our brothers and sisters who are struggling with this and not giving them a safe place to struggle. Um, and, and so I think we, we need to make sure that we're giving them a place. We want them struggling with us, not apart right. from us. And so. Right. 
That's right. That is absolutely right. Just as the as heterosexuals are going to, you know, have challenges as far as struggling with uh, adultery or lust or these type of things. Right. Uh, you know, we need to have a safe place for that, but also for for those who struggle with with uh, homosexuality. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 I think that um, you know the the other way in which understanding of biblical anthropology really helps us here is um, when dealing with this gay gene debate. Um, I've been saddened that this seems to be the number one issue that like Christians gravitate towards when having this discussion. And they feel like so long as there's no gene discovered, um, then, th- yeah. th- then it's okay. We can continue to argue. And my, my question to the Christian, and, and respectfully so, but my question to the Christian who's hanging on to this gay gene debate is, what if they find one? Does, yeah. Are you going to now change your view on homosexuality, on, on same-sex marriage? Does it all go out the window because they found what they would call a gay gene? Um, and, and I think that the concern over the gay gene really comes from a misunderstanding of biblical anthropology. The truth is that we are a biological mess because of sin, and, and, and in all sorts of ways, not just regarding sexuality. So right. I think that that's, that's, that's a key point to keep in mind when, when discussing the gay gene. It really yeah. is irrelevant. It, it is. It's almost that that kind of view is almost like almost a Pelagian type view, you know. As I'm thinking about it, that unless God creates man as a blank slate, then somehow that would be unfair of God. Right. And right. It's not. I mean, yeah. It's not I, and I think it. Right. Sure. Mm-hmm. It, right. And and, I, and again, I would I would say, and and granted, most of. The you know you and I we're we're going to agree more as far as we're both Reformed Christians Reformed Baptists right. and so we're going to have you know our our Calvinist uh, tendencies that certain brothers and sisters wouldn't agree with but but even the the, the non-Calvinists are going to agree we were born with a sinful nature that's not really what exactly. that right there so so oh, you're right Amen. but keep in mind what I said the number one question that my students are getting wrong Christian students is whether we're basically good or not. And so I think a lot of Christians don't have a proper biblical anthropology to work from. So, um, so I, think, I think establishing that's essential because we've spent entirely too much time on this gay gene debate. And I also think that it's oftentimes used by Christians. Um, probably they're not aware of the fact that it's being used this way, but essentially that's what it ends up doing is that they use it to undermine the struggle that the homosexual is having. Um, you know, I, I heard Ravi Zacharias say this once, and I just thought it was just on point. Um, and, and he was at a university, and, and a student asked him a question about homosexuality and same-sex attraction, and whether it was natural or not. And, and he said that he, as a married heterosexual man, his biology didn't change when he got married. And so it might still feel quite natural to pursue other women sexually. The feelings might be there. And yet he's expected to restrain from those feelings because it would be wrong to act on them. Sure. So likewise, 
we don't want to undermine how natural it may feel for them by simply saying it's just a choice. It may at the end of the day be a choice, but what really is a choice is whether or not they act on those inclinations. Those inclinations in of, of themselves in most cases are probably not a choice, but whether or not they act on those inclinations, which is the sin, then that's where the issue arises. And so um, I think that just this idea of a gay gene oftentimes undermines the struggle that's really going on. Yeah, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. And it's um it's not where we want to hang our apologetic on that right. uh, on that particular issue. So that's uh that is very good stuff. Let me give the number out again. What we'll do, let's take a sure. take a quick two minute break and uh give people a chance to uh call in if uh, you guys have questions. Uh seven six zero five four two 3907-760-542-3907, and we'll go ahead and take a, a break for a few minutes. We'll, we'll be back and uh, continue on this fascinating topic, how should Christians deal uh, with this very hot-button issue? be back in a few minutes. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. The church, ultimately, in which I am called to be a member, is what we call the invisible church, whose members include every person who has ever been a believer in Christ. Martin Luther is a member of my congregation. St. Augustine is a member of my church. And when we come and worship together as a community on Sunday morning, we're not just having fellowship with each other, but we have a mystical union with Christ, and Christ has the mystical union with all of his people. So by virtue of our communion with Christ, we also are in communion with all of the saints, with all of the people of God. It transcends space. It transcends time. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org. You're listening to the Anchorberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author, Dr. John Ankerberg. In today's postmodern culture, people increasingly ask, does absolute truth exist? Some claim our beliefs and values are purely subjective, based on no absolute moral authority. But is this what the Bible communicates? Certainly not. The Bible declares that God's words are absolutely true. The psalmist wrote that the laws of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The Apostle Paul noted that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. While today's skeptics may question whether truth exists, God has provided a clear response for those seeking a perfect standard on which to base their life. Allow God's perfect truth to refine your heart and life today. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. All right, and we are back, and we have our good friend Miguel here, and we're uh, talking about the hot-button issue of uh, how Christians uh, can respond in the climate, uh, you know, uh, the, some of these hot-button issues. Uh, particularly, we are dealing with the issue of uh, homosexuality today. One of the things um, that I noticed, uh, I guess a, quite a lot, was in the last election was uh, you saw different 
Christians would take different views on kind of how to deal with some of these issues in the public uh, as far as um, talking about uh, homosexuality and uh, maybe how to um, how to talk about it, I guess, in a way that's not going to bring us uh, as much heat, but also kind of be rational uh, in our in our dialogue so we can be taken serious. And uh, Miguel, uh, are you, you there? You can hear me okay? Yep. Uh, yep, I'm here. Yeah, so we're, we're kind of going through some of that and how to respond uh, to some of those issues. And I had had a clip uh, from Star, I think it was Star Parker. It was a discussion that she was having on The View, and it was dealing with gay marriage. I just wanted to play that clip for about a minute, and I wanted to just kind of get your initial response and some of your, your thoughts on that. Is that okay? Sounds good. Candidate who would actually um, embrace that? Oh, embrace absolutely. Christianity, for instance. Oh, absolutely. And 24 percent of, of of Americans yeah. are right wing, and 19 yeah. percent of Black folks say, "Uh, uh-uh, I am not you, only wait, wait, conservative; I'm right wing." What do you think about gay marriage? No, I, that would be. Right. Awesome. That's that's a, that's a family value when two people but love each other family, and they get married. But that's not what family is. When you talk about why not? Well, it, Okay, okay now let's take biblical worldview versus secular worldview, and that's probably the struggle we're having in our society today. Those that come from a biblical worldview say, I believe that these ten things I should try to live up to. Well, when it says honor your father and your mother, he's yeah. talking about a household here. When Jesus says, for this reason a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, we're talking about family development. And the people that come from a biblical worldview have to take that seriously. But there are things in the Bible, there are things in the Bible that, you have to take all of it seriously. As a Christian woman, that's something that I, oftentimes like struggle with because I think okay the, the first law of the Bible is um, love the Lord your God with all your heart love your neighbor as yourself love right. is the ultimate um, I think uh, law in terms of the Bible so I see that as okay loving another person truly for who they are I don't right. see anything better than that so that's right. that is but one no, thing but, that but I, that's I, also I New Testament that's, that's, that's okay so what, what what is some of your impressions on that uh, Miguel yeah, and it's interesting. In a short period of time, a number of issues were were kind of brought up. But uh, I think that uh, the first is this idea, okay, you know, you have the biblical worldview versus the secular worldview. I thought that was excellent just to at least bring that out so that she could argue. Now, um, we'll talk in a little bit about the fact-value split um, and, and how sometimes that falls into – uh, where people don't understand that we're actually trying to make objective claims when we're talking about this issue as opposed to just subjective claims. We're not just talking about our private little religion. We actually think that same-sex marriage and uh, same-sex actions are sinful for everyone, not just within a Christian realm. But uh, one of the issues that came up, and it, it was a little hard to hear but it seemed like one of the ladies there brought up, there's a lot of things in the Bible, and that, that was kind of all I could hear, but I'm assuming she means that we don't still follow today or that um, sound ridiculous to us today or that we seem to ignore. And so the charge of inconsistency to Christianities, to cr- Christians rather, is, is oftentimes brought up when we're discussing this issue with, with others, with non-believers. That, that's one of the issues. And, uh, and so, so I'll first address that, and, and I think that is an important part. That's one of the things that I actually kind of 
wanted to talk about today as far as additional things we need to be thinking about as Christians in order to engage in this topic effectively. And it's the relationship between law and gospel. As Christians, we can disagree about all of these things. We can disagree, you know, you have dispensationalists and covenant theology and new covenant theology, and they all deal with law and gospel differently. But what we do need to do as Christians is be aware of what we actually believe because all three of these camps can't be right, but the bottom line is all three of these camps actually have a response uh, which they try and root in Scripture about this issue of law and gospel. So we need to, wherever we fall, we need to be able to explain to people why it seems to them like we're inconsistent regarding following different laws in Scripture. But we're actually not. We're trying to hold to a consistent interpretation and framework of Scripture. So that, that's very important uh, when when talking right. about this. Absolutely. Um, just kind of kind of your your thoughts on this. Um, with the election last year, you, you kind of had a big uh, you had a big split, uh, even among Christians, on uh, whether or not it was okay to vote for a Mormon or some of these things. And when we're dealing with this stuff in the in the public uh discourse, how how do you think the best way to kind of argue the case um, so we're not getting, you know, as much heat directed at us, I guess. So it is kind of more of a reasonable, rational discussion. How do you recommend that we talk about these issues? Maybe not just, uh, you know, in government, but, you know, we go to work and we're working with people who are not Christians. A lot of the times, you know, what I see is when you start bringing up the Bible, you even saw it in this clip here, they immediately, well, uh, they, as you pointed out, they're bringing up other things. Uh, well, should we stone people? Should we, you know, do these, this and that? So how do you suggest um, or give us some, some, some points on how do we talk about this with people who are not Christians, people who um, do not have the Bible as the authority. Because, I mean, with Christians, yeah, so, that, you know, you can argue the text, but with Christians right. who, who don't, what, what, what do you say to that? Sure. I think I think there's two main things that I that I think I I see happening, or at least the way we want to address it. Uh, the first I'll mention because it kind of ties into the video. Uh, one of the ladies there, um, I, I think it was, I think her name's Elizabeth Hasselback. It, it sounded like her. She she mentions uh, that it, she struggles with this as a Christian because Christianity calls you to love everyone. And so I'm assuming what she meant is it's hard for her to say homosexuality is wrong because we're supposed to be all about love. And so I think that that speaks to one of the problems we're having. Um, I would say the other hot-button issue uh, in our culture today of this type is is the abortion issue, the pro-life issue. And, And I actually think we're winning that one. And one of the main reasons I think we're winning, and I say that in being aware that there's still entirely way too many taking place, but but I feel like there's been significant victories both in the course and in the perception of society. And one of the key things in that, I believe, is that we've convinced people that there's something to love, and it's the unborn child. 
And when we do it really well, we convince them that we need to love the unborn child and the mother who's carrying the child. And so we've actually been able to to kind of lay this out for people as something we need to do to to love people better. And I think that's a message, even though our culture and society has kind of a twisted view of love, uh, that's something they can buy into. And especially with technology, now with sonograms, you can see babies at such a young age in the womb, and you just see that they're alive, that they're real, that they're a baby. And, and so we've been able to say, hey, the loving thing to do is to keep these babies. We don't want these babies being killed anymore. And people, I think, are starting to really buy that message. Um, where on the the issue we're talking about here today, same-sex marriage and, and, and homosexuality, we've actually been painted as the ones who are being unloving because we're actually trying to keep committed, loving individuals um, from coming together, from being able to marry one another and things like that. So I think that's definitely uh, part, part, of, part of the issue that we're having. So it's how can we communicate these things to people where we're showing, hey, although you may think this is unloving, to let people do things that will ultimately lead to their, their detriment, to ultimately will lead to their destruction, is not loving. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to stop you from going down a path that leads to destruction. So I think communicating the message in a message of love, and we need to be genuine in that, obviously, but, but I think kind of reframing it so that people see even this, like the pro-life issue, is one that's being driven by love. Right. And you make, you make some excellent points, especially with the pro-life movement. One of the things I think that has really helped is being able to kind of argue it rationally and logically. Yes. And, yes. and showing that it is, a, it is a human life, and if you concede that, then there really is no justification at all. Uh, with the same yeah. marriage debate, though, uh, what, I, what I see a lot of times is, again, the Christians, some Christians will, uh, they're, just, they're going to the Bible, which, uh, again, I don't right. necessarily have a problem with that, but... We're not. This isn't like uh, you know Iraq or something where Islam is the you know the, the dominant religion or where we get our our constitution from. So how how do we? Right. What would you say to that? How do how do we respond in in the public eye? Yeah, and I think that what what we need to do is one um, obviously uh, you know explain to them what, where marriage comes from. Why does government even care about marriage? Okay. Why does government give tax break to married couples, and why does government uh, encourage people to get married and, and give certain breaks and, and help people who are actually married? And the reason is because married couples, men and women, when they're married, it's good for society. They, um, it's the only kind of relationship that can actually lead to, to children. Uh, and when married couples stay together, as, as is supposed to happen, uh, now you have children being raised in a home with a father and a mother, and so they're receiving the parenting that they need. They're being cared for. And we see statistically when, when children don't have that kind of a home, it affects them. It has long-term effects on them, which then will 
ultimately have long-term effects on society. So I think that's part of it. Um, you know, and then, and then, so, so why does government have interest? Not because it's religious or not because they favor the Christian view, but rather because it's beneficial for society. And if we think about what those benefits are, most of those benefits go away completely when talking about same-sex marriages, when talking about same-sex relationships. And in fact, you know, death rates among homosexual men is extremely high because it leads to all sorts of diseases and things that, that ultimately um, shorten their lifespan. And so the shortening lifespan and, and you know, passing along diseases and these sorts of things are not things that a government and a society wants for, for human flourishing. So I think that's at yeah. least one place where we would turn. Yeah, you know, Dr. Uh, Frank Turek, he uh, talks about, you know, the government can either uh, permit, promote, or uh, I think it was, well, it's permit, promote, or condone, something to that effect. But um, it, it goes back to the point you made earlier about loving people. And so if if you see something, you know, like homosexuality, which is uh, devastating physically, and shortens lifespans by, you know, by half, um, it really wouldn't be loving to promote that in the society in the same right. way that promoting, you know, heroin use, uh, right. you know, amongst, amongst people. So it's, it really is kind of a, the role of the government uh, to look out for the well-being of the people. Right. And then the other question that has to be asked is, where does it stop? Um, you see, if you want to expand the definition of marriage arbitrarily, then the question is where can we then draw the line? Um, and, and people get offended sometimes when you bring this up, but I think if we can in a loving way communicate it to people, they'll see the inconsistencies. Um, I, I remember when this debate was getting really hot around the election time, um, I, I spoke with my, my you know, I, I spoke with someone I knew and, and, and they disagreed with my viewpoint. And so, you know, I just kind of argued, you have no basis for denying um, polygamy. You have no basis for denying incest. You have no basis for denying uh, really even things that get far worse, bestiality, pedophilia. Uh, once it's rooted in autonomy. I get to do whatever I want sexually, and who are you to tell me this is wrong? Then you end up in a situation where you really can't put boundaries on that anymore, because you can use the same line of argumentation for all of these others. You know, how dare you say that you can't marry your pet whom you've loved for 10 or 15 years and have been committed to and want to spend the rest of your life with? Um, right. You know, I, I, think, I think you end up losing your grounding for putting boundaries on any of that. And then the question, you know, some people will say, well, it's consent. You know, law says, you know, you have to be a certain age and be able to consent. And so they would say pedophilia and bestiality don't really fall into that. But even they're being completely inconsistent because they don't want polygamy. They know that's not good for society. And they don't want incest. We know that's not good for society. And both of those would still fall within the parameters of consenting adults. It's just far too broad a principle 
uh, and will ultimately lead to to destruction for a society. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, and it's like you said, they they kind of get angry. And I think I think it was Pierce Morgan, same type of interview, and they asked him, "Well, why stop with with uh, only two? Why not three? And that's ridiculous. That, but it's it's like you know, yeah. why is that ridiculous? How do you right. draw the line? You know, so you know, forty years ago, two men being married was ridiculous. Right. It's probably more yeah, that was to the women and a guy married than you know. That's exactly right. That was the the uh, interview he did with Michael Brown, who I actually did really well. I thought did really well. I would encourage yeah. the listeners to to look that up on YouTube. Pierce Morgan and Michael Brown. I thought Michael Brown responded really well to him, and and that's a perfect example. You ask someone to be consistent with their view, and then they're going to backpedal. This person that I was discussing this with, they appealed to consent, and then I pulled out. Um, polygamy and, and incest, and they agreed. They don't really have a response for it. And they would agree with me it's not good for society, and they don't want it to become legal, but they don't realize unless you have some kind of reasoning behind that, then it doesn't really matter what you want to happen. There's going to be people who want that to happen, and we already see it in the news. Um, you know, there, There's people in Utah that are now fighting to legalize polygamy, and, and it's just yeah. – it, and, and truthfully, it's a matter of time. I don't see the way that the thinking has, has gotten on this issue. I don't see how they can keep that from happening. No, the same arguments, the same exact arguments for – same-sex marriage can be used for polygamy. There's, there's right. no, there's no distinction. I mean, it's right. it's consent. It's it's people that love each other. It's you know. Right. So it's you, you see that. So um, yeah. yeah. Let's let's see. One of the one of the I just I just had something I was going to ask you and uh, and I lost it. I hate it when that happens. Uh, but um, let me think here. So you're saying when we're we're in the public and we're talking with people or uh, people who are not even Christian, then we can make some of these uh, these type of arguments. Natural law for the Christian. I, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with that. And, and sure. How, how does natural law? How can that help us in our apologetics, maybe on this issue? Yeah, I think it helps in some of the ways we mentioned. Um, just uh, appealing to that, which which you know is, is contributes to human flourishing. Um, also, just the way in which we um, relationships seem to naturally happen, the purpose behind relationships and things like that. Um, you know, I, I think there's a certain sense in which uh, even Paul in Romans, you know, he's talking about. Uh, this this is the way we've actually been made. This is the way that people function. This is the way, and to exchange that is to do something unnatural. And so right. I think even in there, we're, we we have to say, hey, look, this is this is the natural way in things which things work. If things didn't work this way, it wouldn't work for anybody. If this wasn't yeah. happening the way that it happens, a male and a female, society would come to an end. I mean, that, that's just plain and simple. And so to, yeah. to do anything other than that would be unnatural. And, and so I think that that in itself is, is something worth mentioning. I also think, um, uh, you know, uh, along the lines of how do we communicate with people at work, you know, um, who maybe aren't 
who aren't necessarily antagonistic towards Christianity, but just aren't Christians themselves and think, hey, it's kind of mean to not let people who love each other, again, according to culture's definition of love, to not be able to to be married, uh, to not be able to spend the rest of their lives together. And I think, again, this is, and I alluded to it earlier, is the issue of the fact-value split. Um, you know, Nancy Piercy talks about this in Total Truth, and she gets it from Francis Schaeffer, uh, and some have suggested that Schaeffer gets it from Van Til. Um, and, and it's just this idea that you've got these these stories, the upper story, which is kind of your your lower T truth, and that would include religion and ethics and 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 morality and things like that. Then you've got your lower story, which is fact, and that involves science and math and economics and things like that. And so when we communicate to people that we think same-sex marriage is wrong, they think we're talking on that upper story. And what they hear us saying is it's wrong for, you know, from my point of view. It's wrong because I'm a Christian and so I need to believe that it's wrong. But they don't hear us actually saying that it's wrong for everyone. And, and so what I think we need to do, and this goes for the abortion issue, this goes for a lot of the issues in our, in our culture, is we need to kind of blow that fact-value split up. Uh, we need to mm-hmm. let them realize when we're making claims, we're making claims about objective truth. Capital P truth is what we're talking about here. And, and, and it's not that hard to imagine that that's what we're doing. You know, and, and I think a simple question to ask someone is, if God did, did in fact exist, if we have good reasons, and you've had a number of people on the show that do a great job of laying out reasons why we should believe God exists, if God does in fact exist, doesn't it follow then that he would have some kind of right, some kind of authority over us as his creation? And so it seems consistent to think if, if Christianity is true and we can give you reasons why it's true, then it, it's not bigoted, it's not homophobic, it's not wrong to suggest that this kind of relationship goes against the way that the Creator has made things. And so I think this is something we can just ask people about. When you ask people questions, you know, they're a little less defensive, a little less emotional. And I think we can kind of start to flesh that out. And once they get to the fact of saying, okay, it's at least consistent, I can kind of see what you're saying, then we can give some of these arguments from natural law, from from you know that we talked about even just the consistency of well where does it stop um, is this something that's good for society should we be promoting it that kind of thing I, I think that opens the doors but first kind of blowing up this fact value split that we're just talking about preferences we're not talking about preferences we're talking about life and death we're talking about what's good and what's wrong for everybody and, and I think communicating that's really really important that's fair. Yes, that is right on the money. Good stuff. Very good stuff. Well, let, let me ask you this. So we've kind of dealt with how to talk with some of the people that are not Christians and unbelievers. But one of the things that I noticed down here in, in um, North Carolina, where I'm at, when they did the amendment uh, for marriage, I saw an incredible amount of Christians who I would have never, who I thought were solid and strong, uh, basically, just change their position and almost, almost give up certain tenets of Christianity uh, when 
when this issue came up about uh, you know trying to um, protect uh, same, uh, the sanctity of marriage. And I see this all the time, where otherwise normal, rational Christians lose their mind on this issue of homosexuality. Yeah. How do we talk right. to, to fellow believers? John Piper said he thinks within 10 to 15 years that pastors who, who speak out against homosexuality could very well go to jail. And, and you see right. Paris Morgan, right? Well, hey, right. seven states, legal, you know, pointed to that, but it's legal, therefore it's, it's okay. And he said, right. uh, Piper said, you know, I think a lot of pastors will cave. A lot of pastors will cave in. How do we how do we talk with, with Christians about this issue? Because a lot of them seem genuinely confused. And as you heard with, with Elizabeth, um, there's confusion over well, we're supposed to love everybody. So how do you how do you how do we deal with Christians on this issue? That's a great great question, and and I, I see it a lot as well. And I think uh, you know we've we've alluded to the the pro life debate as well. I think you'd agree we see that a lot there too, where it just seems right. like the it's just all of a sudden, I mean, consistency in the way that, you know, this Christian who otherwise loves the Lord and and wants to yeah. honor God and and just they completely kind of go off the rails there. And I think part of it is the way that it's been discussed as an issue of love. Um, and I've already kind of talked about that. So I think that's part of it. And I wouldn't want to, you know, underemphasize that fact. I think it's crucial that we communicate uh, and kind of reframe the debate here. Because I think ultimately what's happening is, and this is what you're seeing, is that people fear for their careers, they say, you know, Christianity is a religion of love, and this doesn't seem loving to me. It doesn't seem loving to me because and, – and part of it is because and, – and I mentioned this earlier – because we haven't taken the time to get to know and really learn about homosexuals, um, because a lot of our beliefs and, and, and things are rooted in fear and ignorance, now when we meet nice people – instead of the demonization that we've created in our head, who genuinely struggle with this issue, we're saying, hey, it, it's not right for me to keep him from that guy that he loves so much. And, and so I think the emotion starts to take over. And that's why, I, you know, as I shared earlier, I think now's the time to think about this, not when our job is on the line, not when we're running for public office. We need to already kind of have our, our minds made up and, and we need to know how we want to approach this issue before we even get there. I think that's a big, big part of it. Um, I, I know one of the, and you know, I'd encourage the listeners to listen to it, um, Matthew Vines is kind of the name that has come up recently. He was a Harvard student. He calls himself a Christian and uh, he, he, he is a homosexual and doesn't believe that the Bible actually teaches against homosexuality. And there's a video on YouTube that he did a number of years ago where he actually goes through the, the main passages and tries to give a different interpretation. But the thing that jumped out to me as I was kind of listening is he's, he's intelligent, he's nice, he's kind. In many ways, in many instances, he actually represents our side very well. And um, he doesn't mock or, um, you know, speak poorly about the other side. Um, and so someone who's listening can be emotionally moved by just how kind he seems. 
And that's why we need to continue to, to boil it down to it's either objectively wrong or it's not. And if it's objectively wrong, the best way we can love Matthew Vines is by trying to correct his misinterpretation of Scripture so that he can better honor God with his body, with his life, and, and the decisions that he makes. Very good. Very good. Give us, uh, we've got about uh, five minutes left. Give us some, some concluding thoughts. Kind of tie the, sure. tie the threads together for us. Yeah, so I, I think um, first, I, I think we can actually look back to uh, some of the apologists of the past. Uh, we, we've been in a, a unique situation here in America for a long time. The Christians have been the majority. Uh, we've been heavily influenced by Christian thinking and the Christian worldview, and we've taken it for granted. And, and so um, now we're kind of heading into a time where, where it's less the case. And so we're, we're going to have to look at some of these other Christians who were not in Christian cultures and see how they handled it. And one of the ones that comes to mind is Justin Martyr. He wrote to the emperor in his day, and he had to defend and clarify Christianity. Um, there were many misconceptions about what Christians believed, and, and so he wrote to the emperor and said, look, this is what Christians believe. This is what we do. And one of the things that jumped out to me as I was reading Justin Martyr was that he would oftentimes point to Christian behavior. And so I think a key for us is going to be we need to get to the point where we're loving homosexuals so well that when we write a letter to the mayor or to the governor or to the president of the United States, people who have influence over public policy, we can say Christians aren't homophobic. Christians don't, aren't bigots. Christians don't hate homosexuals. Look at the way we treat them. And I think that that's going to be a significant part of our apologetics moving forward. And when we can establish that, now we want to make what you, you, know, what you were talking about before. We want to make those arguments from you know, natural law. We want to make those rational arguments and say, listen, this is better for everybody. And once they realize it's not rooted in bigotry or homo, you know, being a homophobe, then all of a sudden, okay, now, now these ideas can make sense. And, and, and I don't know the way this is going to play out, and I don't know. You know, I tend to be more optimistic about culture. I've seen, you know, throughout history that culture can go up and down. And, and so I'm not, you know, I don't think we're doomed, but, but, but I think this is kind of the way we need to, to go about it. We need to make sure that we're communicating to people that our message is not one that is rooted in hate or fear, but rather in truth and in love. Amen. I really appreciate you uh, giving your time. Uh, it's all an hour and a half and uh, helping us navigate through these issues. And uh, the podcast will be available for those listening. Uh, you know, listen to the show. How can do better uh, on this topic? Because I really think it's going to continue to play as far as the, the, the climate of the culture on this issue. It's, uh, it's a scary time to be a Christian, I think, in America, but it's also an exciting time. And it's uh, a wonderful time for us to be able to share the gospel and uh, you know, give the light of 
price because ultimately it's not just uh, you know we're not trying to you know steal a bunch of dudes and don'ts. <laughs> it, it really is to put people to to price and, and how he's made. That's up exactly right. That perfect union with him. So right. Again, we actually. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, just one final thought, and I appreciate you bringing that up. We do have to remember it's ultimately the gospel that changes people. Our goal is not to just create a society of heterosexuals. Absolutely, we want people to, to come to know Jesus and, and to, um, to to honor him as Lord. And so, yeah, absolutely, and I appreciate you bringing that up. And, and I'm very grateful for you having me on the show, and, and, and I'm, I listen often, and so I'm very thankful for your ministry as well. Well, I appreciate that, and I look forward to having you on uh, multiple times again, and hopefully in the near future. I'll, uh, I'll contact you and work something out and get you on again. Sounds great. So, all right. So, I want to want to thank everybody again for listening, uh, and uh, we're going to be back uh, next week. And here on the hope we have. Uh, Scheduled. Uh, I know we've got, uh, we have Rob Bowman coming up uh, soon to do uh, a review on Bart Ehrman's book. Um, I don't remember the name of that book. Uh, remember the one that, that uh, Bart Ehrman just did, Miguel? Uh, Inventing Jesus or something like that. Deity of Jesus. Anyway, we're going to be doing a, uh, a book review on that, and uh, we've got several other shows coming up in the future, so we appreciate you guys. Uh, if you have an email that you want to send to us, just send us at theologymattersradio at gmail.com. That's theologymattersradio at gmail.com. And we will be back again next week, Lord willing, God bless. Where are the witnesses? Where are the spurs? Preach the word. Come on, preach the word. We need sound theology. It must not be forgotten that religious controversy is inevitable. Where living faith in definite truth dwells side by side with error and evil. And preachers may remember that controversial preaching is full of power and full of interest. This is to say that the Reformers did not maintain the status quo in the church. When they expounded the Scriptures, they rocked the boat. They created waves. And the safest way to have a nice little ministry is just preach certain portions of the Bible and overlook other portions. But if you start in chapter 1, verse 1, and your commitment is to preach through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, and not neglect any doctrine that is set forth in the text, rest assured controversy will result. Every true revival is born in controversy and leads to more controversy. That has been true, he said, ever since our Lord said that He did not come to bring peace upon the earth, but a sword. 
I would remind us all that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And we must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and the preaching of the Reformation that brought down the strongholds of the day was the preaching of the Word of God and it was controversial preaching. If you come back to the Bible and a resurgence in inerrancy, it will always lead to a resurgence of Reformed theology. Because Reformed theology is nothing more, nothing less than the sum and the substance of the pure teaching of the Word of God. If one desires not to have a controversial ministry, then don't preach the Bible. But if you do preach the Bible, you will preach the doctrine.